I write these things to you who believe in the Son, in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true by being His Son, being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Thank you, Rachel. Um, <clears throat> I know today is Mother's Day. And we're going to do something we've been doing for quite a few years now. Uh, the reason is because maybe like 10 years ago or so, I was talking to someone who went to our church, and uh, we were talking. It was in the spring, and I said, yeah, next week is Mother's Day, so you know we're looking forward to that. And, and um, she said, I, I won't come. I'm not coming. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. You're going to be out of town? She goes, no, I hate Mother's Day. Mother's Day gives me nothing but pain for the things that have happened in my life. And she shared a few things. And it, I just said, man, I never thought of that. And so I want to read something. We do this every year. So some of you, this is very familiar. Um, and I'm going to try to get through. I am a cry baby. So hang with me on this. To those who gave birth this year to their first child, we celebrate with you. To those who lost a child, we mourn with you. To those who are in the trenches with little ones every day and wear the badge of food stains, we appreciate you. To those who experience loss through miscarriage, failed adoptions, or running away, we mourn with you. To those who walk the hard path of infertility, fraught with pokes and prods and tears and disappointment, we walk with you. Forgive us when we say foolish things. We don't mean to make this harder than it is. To those who are foster moms, mentor moms, and spiritual moms, we need you. To those who have warm and close relationships with your children, we celebrate with you. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance with your children, we sit with you. To those who lost their mothers this year, we grieve with you. To those who experienced abuse at the hands of your own mother, we acknowledge your experience and we weep. To those who live through driving tests and medical tests and the overall testing of motherhood, we are far better for having you in our midst. To those who have aborted children, we remember them and you on this day. To those who are single and long to be married and mothering your own children, we mourn that life has not turned out the way you longed for it to be. To those who step-parent, we walk with you on these complex paths. To those who envisioned lavishing love on grandchildren, and yet this dream is not yet or not to be, we grieve with you. To those who will have emptier nests in the upcoming years, we grieve and rejoice with you. 
To those who place children up for adoption, we commend you for your selflessness and remember how you hold that child in your heart. To those who are pregnant with new life, both expected and surprising, we anticipate with you. This Mother's Day, we walk with you. Mothering is not for the faint of heart, and we have real warriors in our midst. We remember you. All right. Now i got to move on to a sermon, and I'm on the edge. Uh, <clears throat> Rachel read our, uh, our scripture for today. We are at the end of the book of 1 John, so I have actually completed my assignment. I feel like a student in school and going to the professor. I've completed my assignment. It's three months late. Sorry. Um, at the beginning of the book of 1 John, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, John writes a prologue. He sets up what is coming. Now, we're in the epilogue. We're, we're now in a section that it kind of looks back. I mean, he's not reviewing the whole book, but, but he is going to just hit some important points, points that he obviously feels are very important. All right? Okay, so he's going to talk about confidence and certainties. I want you to see this. He, first of all, he's going to say, our position gives us confidence. He says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. All right. So verse 13, what is he saying here? He's saying, I'm going to look at everything I've written. I'm going to look at the purpose of everything I've written. And what is the purpose? And this goes through the whole book. We've hit this so many times. Assurance. How can a person know? How do we know that we have life in Christ? How do I know that I'm a follower of Christ? I can't review all of that. He went through it. It's, it's four or five chapters worth. But here he's going to say, this is important, okay? Because the foundation of our confidence is assurance. If I have assurance, I will be confident. Children can only be confident of going to their parents with stuff if they are assured that they are loved. If a child is not sure that their parent loves them, they're going to be hesitant to come to them with whatever happens to be on their mind or on their heart at any given time. But if a child is assured, they have confidence, my parents love me, my dad loves me, my mom loves me, then they feel free, they feel confident to come with anything, even the most ridiculous of things. And if you know, anybody that's had children, you know when they're little, sometimes they come to you with stuff you're like, what? That's a stupid, you don't say that, obviously, because you don't want to break the confidence, but they come with goofy stuff, but it's because they're confident. They're confident. And so he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, in the Greek, he, it's, it's a little bit different. They've, in the English, they've kind of made it like this to make it um, more readable. But here's the point. He says, I write these things to you. Now, in the prologue, he said, I am writing these things, looking towards the future. Now it's in the past tense. So it could be, I have written these things. He's looking back over the book. I've written these things, and literally it says that you may know you have eternal life. So there's the purpose. What is the purpose of my writing? That you may know you have eternal life. Well, who has it? He says, the ones who believe in the name of the Son of God. And so he's looking back now, and he's saying, I have a purpose. I want you to be sure of your position in Christ. I want you to know where you stand with him. I want you to know you have eternal life. 
Literally, he says, the life you are living is eternal. Right now, it's eternal. It's endless as to time, but it's God-breathed as to quality because it's right now. It's not off in the future. He says, you have it at this moment. Believing in the name of Jesus is how it happens. Now, we know in this book, there were lots of false teachers who poisoned that belief. John addresses them a number of times. They changed the gospel. They've changed the good news. And John is restating what it is. He's reaffirming how important this is. He's reiterating the importance of believing on the name of Jesus. And he stated this before. In 1 John 4, 2, he said, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not, does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. Now, when we were in chapter 4, we, we took that passage and we, we, and we wanted to look into it a little deeper. And we're going to do that. Because it's not just somebody just saying, I acknowledge Jesus, you know. I mean, I, I, uh, as I was growing up, I, we went to uh, a, a denom- well, it doesn't matter. We went to the Episcopal Church occasionally. We definitely hit Christmas. We definitely hit Easter. And then if any of my two brothers and I screwed up my mom would say, we definitely need to go to church next week. So church was our punishment um, to, for things that we had done. And after a while, you know, you begin to, um, you just know the stuff that goes on in the, the Episcopal church. There was a lot of liturgy. And so one of the things they'd, they, the, the, the priest would always say, uh, and now the Lord be with you. And we would all answer back, and with thy spirit, let us pray. And one time when I'd first gotten saved, um, I was in this church. It wasn't an Episcopal church, and I, and I was in a, in a church in Arlington, Virginia. And, and the pastor looked at us, and he said, the Lord be with you. And I just said, and with thy spirit, let us pray. And then I realized, no one else said that. <laughs> like, what, are, what kind of Christians are these people? They don't even know the words. I'm in a really dumb church, right? That's what I was thinking. I didn't realize who really was the dumb one. So, it is more than just parroting words. It is, what do these words mean, and do I believe them? So here we go. He says, every spirit that acknowledges Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So let's look at that. Jesus. First, that word Jesus. It's from the Greek, pointing to the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua. And it really means, literally, Yahweh is salvation. That's the first thing. Christ. That's the Greek word Christos. It's the Messiah, the anointed one, the one God has anointed to be our Savior, all right? Then he says, has come, has come. And this is, this, this is, is uh, actually, this is in the perfect tense, which means there's a past completed action that continues to have an effect and will continue to have that effect in the future. So what does it mean? It means a past completed action. Jesus, right, Yahweh is salvation. Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, has come, past completed action. And now that past completed action comes all the way up to our day, and it still affects us. Not only that, but it will continue to affect in the future. That's what that tense means with that verb in the Greek. All right? And then third, he's come in the flesh. The salvation of Yahweh, the anointed one, has come in the flesh and continues to be with us. He's come in the flesh like a human like me, right? So when he says, 
This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges it has to be that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That spirit's from God. See, he's saying a person, this is what they have to believe. It's not just what they say, it's what they believe. So as we unpack that, we begin to realize what he's saying is, do you believe this? And if you believe this, I'm telling you, you have assurance. You have a foundation that leads to confidence. Because what happens is it tells you, this is who I am. This is how I am defined. I am his and he is mine. This is who I am. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. He's saying, when we believe that, it gives us this assurance because this is who I am. This tells us where our foundation is. This tells us what we have confidence in. And when I have this assurance, when I realize this is who I am, even when I sin, even when I struggle, I say, okay, I know I did something wrong. This is an ongoing struggle, but I am a child of God. What I did, that's not who I am. That doesn't define me. God defines me. That's just simply my old self trying to reassert control, but I am not that anymore. And so it leads to this confidence. All right? Then in verse 14, oops, there we go. Then in verse 14, he says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So this word confidence literally means freedom of speech, the idea that I can say whatever I want. Freedom of speech without retribution. I can speak to God in all situations. But this is the part I love. Because when it says, we have, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. The in approaching is this little word that means, um, it means this idea of being near and face to face. Being near and face to face. And I've highlighted this before. But let's think about that. Being near and face-to-face means that I have the freedom to speak plainly to the very face of God. Uh, the other day, I, I, I try to do this sometimes. I, I, when, when my kids were young, I always tried to, when we were having any kind of a serious discussion, and even sometimes when it wasn't a serious discussion, I would get down and get face level with them so that we would be face to face. I felt like then what happens is it's not the authority parent looking down on this child who must look up and try to explain something. And, and I still try to do it. I just know that now <clears throat> I'm 62 years old, and when you go down on a knee to talk to a kid, the problem is you have to get back up. That's the problem, and it's not quite as easy as it used to be. I still do it, but the other day, we had our grandkids, and, and my little grandson, Caleb, he had done something, and he was, uh, <clears throat> something had, he'd lost something, or, and he was beside himself. He was grieving, you know, and it's one of those things, times where you go, okay, <laughs> you can't find your toy. It's not gone. It's in the house somewhere. You just put it somewhere, and you're dummy, you forgot it. Um, and I know some of you are thinking, wow, he's a terrible parent and a terrible grandparent, the way he talks. Uh, I don't say it that way. And so he, he came up to me, and he said, Pops, I just... Been... So I said, okay, this is the time to do this. So I got down on one knee, and I was looking. I said, Caleb, stop, stop, stop. Now tell, tell me about this. Where did you... And he said... And because I was right face to face with him, he put his hand on my shoulder. Like... And then, okay... <laughs> For those that you have kids, those of you who have grandkids, this is going to get you. Then he put his hand on my cheek. And he said, Pop, I don't know where it is. 
I cannot find it. I think my brother Lyndon stole it. I said, Caleb, no, Lyndon's just one and a half. If he did steal it, it's not more than five feet away, you know? Because, but I'm really worried. I love that toy. And I said, okay, we're going to find it, buddy. You and me, we're going to find it. We will? Yeah, we will. Let's go. And it's like, <laughs> I get up, you know. He's tearing. So we go in. You know, it was like five feet away. It wasn't anywhere. But the whole thing was, I mean, think about this. God says, you start speaking to me. You start praying. Now you know how much I'm invested in this illustration. God says, what is it? Talk to me. Touch my face. I'm right here. I'm listening. And I care. I don't care if it's a dumb toy. I don't care if it's the smallest thing. I'm right here. You know, so that when I pray, God, you know, and I share with this, people who go to our church a lot, know God in, 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 in his celestial kingdom, and there's angels and archangels and heralds and cherubims and all kinds of bums. And, and um, if I'm going to be there, there's one more bum, yeah, right? And so, and so he says, he says, shh, my son Bob is talking. And I want to hear what he has to say. And I say, God, I'm so worried about And he gets face to face with you. He gets face to face with you. When you talk to God, he's face to face with you. This is shot through scripture. It's all over the place. That's how much he cares. That's how much he loves. That's the confidence, the freedom to speak that you have when you go into the presence of God. He's near to us. He's close to us. He hears us. He has no problem getting the message. He's attentive. He's listening. He's interested. He's interested in what you have to say. He gets down on your level. I mean, we see, that you ever notice sometimes if you talk to someone and they don't quite face you, you know they got something else they think is more important than hearing what you have to say. But if they turn and listen and face intently, you go, this person, and, and, and listen intently, you know, this person cares about what I'm saying. But notice here, it says God answers according to his will. He listens and he cares about anything we say, but he answers according to his will. Which brings us to a tough part of this. I think of Jesus in Gethsemane. And he says, God, if there's any way, I don't want this. I don't want this. And then he says, nevertheless, it's not my will. It's not what I want. It's what you want, God. And so we have to understand, above all else, <clears throat> God's going to do his will. And anything, there, there's a lot of things that in the moment may seem good to us, may seem like the right thing to us, may seem so simple that this is perfect to us. But if we get it, it ultimately will lead to disaster, and we will hate the results at some point. I mean, I think about that, you know, those in Scripture, those horrifying words when God says, and he gave them over, and he gave them over. He let people have what they wanted, and it is devastation in their lives. And so John is aware of this, and he emphasizes submission to the will of God in this passage. You know, it's like in James. If you remember in James, it talks about how businessmen say, we're going to go here, we're going to go here, we're going to make a profit. We got this good, we've got this you know, good widget that's going to sell to everyone. They're going to love it. Uh, it spins on a finger, and it mesmerizes them or hypnotizes, you know, whatever. And, and we're going to go here and go here and go here, and we're going to sell it, and we're going to make a lot of money. And James says, no, 
He says, you say, if God wills, if God wills, we go here and here. And his whole point is not that it's just these words, like we said before, if God wills. It's a heart attitude. I want what God wants. My plan is to go here and sell and go here and sell, but only if God is with me on that. And if he isn't, I want him to stop it, to shut the door. And so he's, he's teaching us, James teaches us here, John is teaching us, God's will is so key in this. God assures them he will work. He promises he will work. He will answer. You may not see it right away, but he will work. And then verse 15, he just takes an, an extension of that emphasizing. And, we, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we will have what we asked of him based on the will of God. That, that it, it all connects because it's, it's all a part of a sentence that you have to follow in that, and, and it all connects there based on the will of God. And so he's saying there, I want you to understand this. Now, let's get to the part. If, you, if we read it, when we read it, if you, if you stopped at it and you said, oh my goodness, I want to know what Bob has to say about this. All right, let's look at verse 16 and 17. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give them life. I refer to those who I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. Now he's not. I just real quick. He's not saying don't pray about it. He's just saying I'm not saying that you have to pray about it. Verse 17. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. So here we have this interesting passage, this situation. It's the subject of prayer is being continued here. So just remember he's talking about there. They have this, this confidence. They can go to prayer. They can speak face to face to God. They can know that he hears. They can know that he listens. And now he's narrowing it down to a very specific instance, a brother or a sister that is sinning. Okay, no problem with that. But then John introduces this thing that there's a sin that does not lead to death and a sin that does lead to death. Now, what is that about? Well, I have been studying this for a while and doing a ton of reading, and I can tell you, I'm totally assured of this. I don't exactly know what it's about. I'm not 100% sure what he's saying here. I mean, we can get clues from this book and from other books of Scripture that can form what we think, but I want to tell you, and I have ideas, but I am not so sure of them that I'm willing to stand up here and teach it. Because here's why. God says teachers are held to a standard a high and strict standard. And I'm not going to sit up here and tell you this is exactly what it means. It is something that is difficult. Let me say one or two things about it. John has been talking a lot in this book about spiritual leaders who lead others astray and the great harm they do because of that. So there is a sense that this may be involving those types of people. There's a good reason to think that he may have those kind of people in mind. There may be something in this wording that John's first century readers knew exactly who he was talking about and what he was talking about, but we haven't figured that out yet. Now, in chapter 3, this, John talks about Cain killing his brother Abel, and then he expands it into this idea of a spiritual death. And he says, not loving is remaining in death. All right, so hating murdering, rejecting life. That's, that's what he says not loving people is. So there may be this idea that it's a, it's, it has the idea of a spiritual death. I don't know. I do know this, that in our day and age on TV and on the internet, there are people who are misusing the gospel of Jesus Christ to get money and power and to live lavishly in a way that I believe God would not approve of. And God will judge them. 
God will judge them. And, uh, but, but the thing is, in the middle of this, don't lose the message. We have this great opportunity to pray for others. Pray for others grounded in our confidence that God hears us. He is interested in what we're praying about, in who we're praying about. He focuses on what you're asking because he cares about what you care about. Don't lose that. I, I, you know, Some of the reading I've done, people spent so, all this time and they're trying to figure out this one little thing and they can lose the big picture. It's Mother's Day. And I know a lot of moms worry and pray about their children and their grandchildren. Prayers of protection. Prayers for a child that's going in a direction that can lead to disaster. Prayer for a child who's already been in a disaster. Prayers for a child who doesn't seem to care about what you think or what you say. And not just moms. Dads, too, know that agony of a soul. And John is telling you he listens to you. He cries with you. God's heart is broken, too. He loves your child. And he says he is working. He is working. You would do anything for your child, even die. So would he. And he did. So know that he's working. For God is not wishing that any should perish. Know that he is working. In verse 17, all wrongdoing is sin. And there is a sin that does not lead to death. Now, I think what's going on here is <clears throat> you've had these false teachers who have been diminishing certain things. That's not that bad. That's not even really a sin. You couldn't help, you know, all this stuff. They're diminishing. And John says, no, I want you to stop and think all wrongdoing is sin. I don't want you to forget that. Don't start getting into this idea of there are levels of sin so some aren't as bad as the other. Because oftentimes the sins that we don't think are that bad are the sins that God says are the worst. Um, we talked a little about that got a little podcasty thing. I don't even know what to call it. I just, Jose puts up a video camera and I talk for three minutes. And it's on our website. And we talk about that last week. We talked about the seven things that God hates. And like four of them have to do with sins of the mouth, which is sins that we think are the least. You know, we think of terrible things, not belittling someone. That's not a sin. God says it is. Okay, so he says, I don't want you to minimize. I don't want you to do what the Gnostics do. These false teachers do. All wrongdoing is sin. All sin is seeing something's wrong, seeing something that's evil, and deciding to do it. All right? So our position gives us confidence. Now our position gives us certainty. This is verses 18 to 20. He says, we know that anyone born of God does not continue in sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him, him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So this passage, he hits three we knows right in a row. We know, we know, we know. He's emphasizing this. This is something, how do we know? He's saying, because this is what the gospel is. This is what the good news is. In the Greek, uh, uh, the word gospel, good news, is euangelion. And, and uh, what it was used for in those days was oftentimes, uh, uh, so anyways, it's a rabbit trail. Okay, so, and I've kind of said this. The, the, the Persians didn't like the Greeks. Uh, this, was, this was in the, uh, before, not long before Christ, about 300 B.C., 400 B.C. Persians were trying to conquer the Greeks. 
large Persian army came. Xerxes sent a large Persian army, landed at the plains of Marathon. Athens went to Sparta, said, we got a problem. You guys got to help us. Sparta said, sorry, big party here today. Can't come. We'll see you in a couple days. So Marathon is 26 miles from Athens. What a coincidence, right? Um, the plains of Marathon are exactly one marathon away from Athens. So the, the Athenians go. Through brilliant uh, um, tacticians, they defeat, they defeat the army of Xerxes, the Persian army. They run back into their ships. They sail away. They say, someone run and tell Athens that we won. Give them the euangelion, the good news. So a man named Pheidippides, um, um, what a name. He, he ran 26 miles, got to the center of the city. Euangelion, the Persians have been defeated. Then he dropped dead. That teaches me something about excessive running. I, I don't, you know, <laughs> just had to put that in. Um, so what was the Euangelion, the good news? It was this, the victory has been won. You did not win the victory. Someone won it for you. Someone in your place, your representative, fought on the battlefield and won the victory that you now get the benefits of. That's euangelion. That's good news. Now, let's talk about something we talked about a while back, uh, years ago, David and Goliath. David and Goliath are getting ready to fight, and what are they? They are chosen people to represent their people. They're a champion. It's, it's when two, two armies put up a person to fight, that person is called their champion. And David won. Oh, hope I didn't spoil it for you, but David won. And the whole army of Israel got the good news. What was the good news? The good news was Goliath has been defeated. You didn't defeat him. Your champion defeated him in your place. You get the benefits of what your champion did for you. You get all the benefits of winning without any of the fighting. Now, the battle still continued, but it was, the battle was over the moment Goliath died. The, the Philistines were running, and, and, and the army of Israel was simply chasing them. Let me just show you this passage. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin which so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. The word pioneer there is the Greek word archagos, which means champion. It means champion. It means Jesus is your champion. You see... When you look at David and Goliath, you know, people say, be like David. Let me tell you something. The point of that passage is not for you to be like David. You are not the champion. You're part of the army of Israel. You're part of those guys that are hopeless and helpless and weak, and they can't figure out what to do, and they're scared, and they're afraid, and your champion went and won the battle for you because David was a forerunner of Jesus Christ in that. He foreshadows Jesus Christ. And so now when we have the good news of salvation, what is the good news of salvation? Our champion, Jesus Christ, he won the battle. We reap the benefits. We didn't do a thing. We didn't make it happen. We didn't help him. We didn't lift an arm. We didn't lift a finger. 
We did nothing, and we get the benefits of his victory because he is our archagos. He is our champion. So this is how scripture reaffirms to us over and over and over these principles that in the first, even in 1 John here. So our position gives us confidence. Our position gives us certainty. Let me just stay one more thing with certainty. Our champion now, if you look at verse 20, our champion now has given us, get to 20, Bob, there we go. Uh, we know also that the Son of God, our champion, has come and has given us understanding. Okay, the good news has been preached to us. Now we know what has happened so that we may know him who is true, his Father. And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true and eternal life. He says he's given us understanding. We talked about that in 1 John earlier, that two-part two authentication. We have the Holy Spirit, the subjective authentication of truth, and we have the word of God, which is the objective authentication of truth. And it takes both of them to know the will of God. And so our champion has given us understanding. He says, we know, we know, we know. These are things we know. They're simple truths, but they have incredible meaning. John is saying we are in a relationship with God. We are in touch with eternity. From the very beginning in the first chapter, John said, I'm going to talk about a relationship with God. And he says, and now we know. And finally, he ends with just a closing thought. And this is one of those things where it's like, John's like thinking, is there one last thing I should say? One last thing I should say. And he says this, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And he uses an incredibly affectionate term. It means little loved ones. It's like when you're talking, it's like, you know, when you're, some of those times with your kids and you tuck them into bed and you just go, man, that kid looks like a little angel lying on their bed. I know it's disguised, but it looks like a little angel and he says, little angels, little loved ones, these ones I love so dearly. He says, keep yourselves from idols. What is that? Anything. Anything that takes the place of God in your life. Anything that has a higher standing than God in your life. Anything that commands more of your attention, your love, your resource, whatever, than God. Because in a sense, if you think about this, all sin comes out of idolatry. Every sin that we do is coming from a belief that if I do this, this will be better than what God has for me. This will be more enjoyable than what God has for me. This will, this will get me out of this difficult situation because God's not going to do it. And so what are you doing? You're putting something above God. And so sin comes out of idolatry. You can trace it back every time. And so he's saying, my dear children, you're hearing these people who minimize sin, who make it sound like it's nothing. And he says, don't, don't go there. That's idolatry. You are demeaning God when you do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our archagos, our champion, who stood in our place, who fought and died and won. And we reap the benefits of that. And so we thank you, Lord. We bless you because... As we have sung earlier, you are good. And so now, Lord, we rest in that. On this day, when we remember moms, and we think about children, we think about the struggles, the difficulties at time, and the joys and the blessings. But we know you're good. You're chasing after wayward children. You are loving.